Galatians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. God's word says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, why this topic? I mean, there's a sense in which uh, it's obvious why this topic. Uh, Thanksgiving is next week, and I'd like for us to think about Thanksgiving uh, the way the Bible teaches about Thanksgiving. And of course, normally uh, we preach here at Covenant verse by verse, but uh, we do stop occasionally, uh, for instance, during the season of Advent, but also during the season of uh, Easter. And so it's not terribly unusual that we would uh, take a pause and look at a different scripture. We are, after all, entering into a reflective season, aren't we, with Thanksgiving and Christmas. And I want to address the role of Thanksgiving because there's some that may actually find it hard to be thankful regardless of what the calendar says. Maybe some of you are like that who are here this morning. And in Colossians, Paul mentions thanks five times. And as he does so, he uses three different Greek words. Just a a quick uh, uh, catching up for us in terms of the setting of Colossians. Uh, During uh, the writing of Colossians, Paul is himself in prison in Rome. And so he's writing in probably the early 60s. And he had only passed through uh, Colossae. He's probably been to the city, but he was only passing. We have no evidence that would suggest that Paul ever stayed the night in Colossae. But he stayed in Ephesus for three years, which is only a hundred miles away. And while he was in Ephesus, he preached to a young man from Colossae. And that young man, a man by the name of Epaphras, uh, returned to his own city and he evangelized that city and he saw a church be planted. Well, now that was eight years ago from when Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians. And over those eight years, it would seem that this church is maturing. But as they're maturing, a kind of legalism, a legalistic theology is beginning to make its rounds in the church. And so Paul writes to them and he wants to counter this teaching. But he also wants to uh, encourage them to continue to live holy lives. This is, this is actually rather an interesting point in Colossians. Here's the congregation that is struggling with legalism. And as they struggle with legalism, Paul doesn't tell them to stop behaving as Christians. Instead, uh, with all the more zeal, he describes the basis by which they are to live holy lives as Christians. In the face of legalism, Paul doesn't say stop living holy lives. 
he describes for them the basis for that holy life that they're called to live before God. And in that, he shows them a larger view of who Jesus is and a larger view of the power of the gospel so that they might understand the why and the how of their holy living before God. And in the process, he says a few things in this letter about thankfulness. And that word for thanks occurs in our passage here this morning three times. It's why I selected this passage. And here's what I want you to understand from this passage as we make our way through it. Biblical thankfulness is deeply associated with Christ who lives in us and among us. According to the Bible, thankfulness is deeply associated with Christ who lives in us and among us. And in Christ, thankfulness becomes a powerful motivator for living well before him. In Jesus Christ, our thankfulness, our gratitude actually becomes a powerful motivator for the kind of holy life that we're to live as Christians. And I've divided this passage into three portions, and I'm calling these three portions this. The first, verses 12 through 14, is about wearing Christ. It's about putting on clothes, but it's about wearing Christ. And verses 15 through 16 are about enjoying Christ in our day-to-day life. And then at the very end, in verse 17, we read about living for Christ in the future. Wearing Christ, enjoying Christ, and living for Christ. And let's then begin at verses 12 through 14. Wearing Christ. It's uh, putting on the clothing of the Christian life. Our passage opens with a, a rather simple command. It's a command to put something on. It's a command to get dressed. And in that regard, Paul's uh, practical application is very practical indeed. We dress every day, or we should dress every day. But it's not only practical that he would begin with this kind of command, it's also very poignant, because as we dress every day, we actually dress for different reasons. We, we dress for the day, and we dress for the evening, and we dress for bed differently. We dress for warm weather and we dress for cold weather. We dress for work. We dress for play. We dress for protection. We dress for ceremony like weddings, funerals. We dress with detail, color, texture, accessories, jewelry. These things matter. We dress to meet the expectations of others, but we also dress for our own expectations to be met, our own tastes and interests and statements and so for paul it's it's an illustration of putting on and it's meant to communicate very very readily and so it does putting on christian holiness is a lot like putting on clothing says paul but for for paul the, the putting on you'll notice in this passage is not just a regular everyday putting on it's a putting on that is qualified and here's what i mean Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It's there in verse 12. You see that. It's not merely a putting on. It's a qualified kind of putting on. Uh, Don't dress merely as an expression of your humanness, Paul says. There's something that actually comes before you're putting on. He's telling the Colossian believers to put on, to do this, 
as a person who has received God's special interest. A Christian is not just someone who believes in Jesus for salvation, although that's true. The Bible says that that profession of faith is about God's work in you by his Holy Spirit. To be a Christian is to be the recipient of something that God has done. He has done something, and that something actually matters to your putting on. Every every Christian person needs to understand three things, says Paul. A Christian is God's chosen one. And this is a statement about God's independent work, his work of electing, of choosing. A Christian should understand about themselves that that, that they are God's chosen one. They, They are the recipient of the mind of God. And Paul goes on and he says that a Christian is someone who is holy before God. This is a connection to being made holy through the cross. That's what Paul talks about in the middle of chapter 1 of Colossians. A Christian is holy before God, made holy through the cross. And a Christian is also beloved by God. This is a practical description of God's perspective towards us as Christians. We are beloved by God. And so if you just back up a little bit, A very practical but also poignant illustration opens this passage, but there are things to understand before the the practice of this passage, the putting on. And what Paul means by this is that contemplating the richness of Christianity is actually a prerequisite for our putting on the clothing of the Christian life. Paul thinks that the Colossians need to be reminded to begin their good works, to begin their holy behavior by contemplating really and truly who they are as Christians. And this applies to us as well. In a fast-paced world that we live in, a world with email and social media, text, and on-demand everything, I actually think, as I contemplate our own age, I think of Pascal who said hundreds of years earlier that a man's sole cause of unhappiness is that he doesn't know how to sit quietly. There's something about the pace of our world that aggravates that biblical need for us to sit quietly and to contemplate who we are as Christians, to understand our identity afresh as Christians. Consider that you are chosen by God. You are enfolded into his grand plan. Consider that you are holy in his sight through Jesus Christ and consider that you are loved by God. And then the word thanksgiving, you see, it doesn't actually occur in verses 12 through 14. But the sentiment of thanksgiving ought to be felt as we consider what it means to be a Christian, which is what's required before we put on the Christian life. See, Paul, you can see here, he takes the time, doesn't he, with great detail to list for us the clothing of the Christian life right here. He, he says uh, the clothing of the Christian life includes uh, hearts that are full of compassion. Uh, in the Greek, that word for compassion is broad. It's hearts full of mercy, hearts full of pity. He says that the clothing of the Christian life is kindness. How interesting is it that Paul would care about something so very small as mere kindness? 
He says that part of the clothing of the Christian life is humility, which uh, the word that he uses in the Greek is about our own self-assessment, that we, that we assess ourselves with humility. And then it's related to the next word, meekness. That's also a part of our clothing. And the word that Paul uses there is the word that is about the demeanor of gentleness towards others. Uh, Again, part of the clothing of patience, which he describes as bearing with one another, which is a kind of painful endurance of others. And then a very countercultural thing indeed, Paul says that part of the clothing is to have a certain view with regards to legitimate complaints against others, that we would actually forgive others as Jesus has forgiven us. These are legitimate complaints that we would have against others. And he says, your clothing is to forgive them. And then finally, Paul says there at the very end, he says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And my favorite uh, commentator on uh, Colossians, uh, he likes to continue the clothing imagery in this passage, and he translates this passage uh, not, and above all these, put on love. He translates it over all of these things, put on love, almost as if it's the the last garment that you put on. It's the, the heavy outer garment that you then put on, and it becomes the outer garment that is the first thing that people behold as they see you. Well, this is, this is a Christian's clothing. And, and Paul, he's very serious here. These are qualities that we're commanded to put on. That's how Paul opens this passage, with a command word, put on. And then he has said very quickly that we are aided in this putting on by considering God's regard for us so that our putting on is a kind of thanks to God for what he has done for us in the gospel. But nonetheless, clothing our lives with these qualities is hard, isn't it? It's going to require a lot of confession of sin. It's going to require a lot of apology. And it's going to require a lot of grace from our brothers and sisters around us. But the clothing of our lives with these qualities, as hard as it may be, this is commanded us. But Paul has already told us to consider that we are chosen by God, holy before him, and that he loves us. And so thanks is the sentiment behind the putting on. But consider something else before we move on. Not only has God favored us, made us holy, loved us, he has actually already clothed us with these things. We can make our way through the Gospels and we can find examples of each of these qualities that Paul has just listed. Where? In the life of Christ towards his disciples. His disciples received Jesus' compassion. Received his kindness, his humility, his meekness, his patience, his forgiveness in the face of very legitimate complaints. And his love that covered his own life with perfect harmony. And so we're uh, taught by Paul to understand that the the clothing of the Christian life actually springs from a, a kind of quiet contemplation of realizing our identity in Jesus Christ, our union with him, who we truly are as Christians. And this contemplation is filled with thanks to God for the very work of the gospel 
Or we could say it this way, that with a shallow understanding of the work of God in redeeming us through the cross and clothing us in Jesus Christ comes a shallow view of the Christian walk. Let me shorten that down a bit. A small view of the power of the gospel necessarily leads to a small view of living the Christian life. You're going to hear me say that again at the end of the sermon. But note that the putting on is bathed in thankfulness for how God regards us and for what God has done for us through Christ Jesus. That's wearing Christ. But as we, as we make our way through this passage in, verse, in verses 15 through 16, uh, we're, we're told by Paul that we are to be the kind of people who are enjoying Christ. Now, I get it. In fifteen sixteen, there's actually no mention of the word joy, but I think that joy uh, underlies what Paul is saying. Uh, joy and giving thanks already appear together in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. Joy and thanks are together. And then we look at our, our verses here, 15 and 16. Thanksgiving actually appears twice in these verses. And so the setting here is, is not the Christian activity of putting something on, but rather uh, the Christian activity of uh, passively, it seems, receiving the work of Jesus Christ, putting on at the beginning of our passage, receiving or enjoying the work of Christ here in the middle of the passage. And what is that uh, work then? Well, it's the peace of Christ that rules, Paul says in verse 15. And it's the word of Christ that dwells, he says in verse 16. And then right in the middle, the very end of verse 15, Paul says, and be thankful. Now, these two verses are very elegantly composed. And as they are situated uh, next to each other, right there in the middle is this separate phrase, and be thankful. What's, what's happening in these two verses well, Christ is at work in a couple of pretty surprising ways in the church at Colossae. Uh, right here at Covenant Presbyterian, uh, we could say Christ is at work in a couple of surprising ways. Uh, first, Christ is at work in individual Christians. Uh, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, this is not an expression of possibility. It's an expression of assurance, and then similarly, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's some gravity here. If you're a Christian, the peace of Christ currently rules inside your heart. And the word of Christ currently dwells inside your heart. Now, as, and as individualistic Americans, this may not be so surprising. Uh, we tend to personalize our faith rather instinctively, don't we? But it is here in the passage that Jesus Christ, that he is with us, ruling in our hearts, dwelling uh, in our hearts. That's happening at Colossae, and it's happening here. But there's another surprise, that Christ is not only at work in individual Christians, but Christ is at work in the church body. The peace of Christ actually rules the church body and the word of Christ actually dwells in the body of believers together. I should share this with you. When we look at these two verses and, and we can uh, understand the presence of Jesus Christ individually and the presence of Jesus Christ corporately in the church body, 
I have to say that uh, most commentators of the Protestant Reformation suggest that what Paul primarily is indicating in these two verses is that Christ rules over and dwells with the body of believers together. Now, that's an important reality in this passage, that we enjoy Christ Jesus individually, but we enjoy him as a body of believers. Both are true. Christ is with our heart. Christ is with our church body. We enjoy him individually. We enjoy him corporately. But there's some special benefits that come about because Jesus Christ is present with us as a corporate body. But here's what I, here's what I want us to hear from these two verses. There's two critical realities having to do with thankfulness that I want us to be very careful to notice. Right here in the middle of the passage, two critical realities having to do with thankfulness. I want us to acknowledge that where Paul speaks, uh, where Paul most speaks about thankfulness in this passage, he speaks about the work that Christ does in the life of the church. The work that Christ does without asking for our permission. The work that Christ does without waiting for our obedience or compliance. Thankfulness, first and foremost, is attached to the work of God. You see, the gospel, Christian, you and I need to be reminded of this. The gospel, it's not merely a work of converting people, is it? It's a work of God's present presence with us day by day, hour by hour. If you're a Christian, you may feel that there is no reign of Christ in your heart, that there is no word of Christ dwelling in you, but Paul's words or God's word says otherwise. He is there. He is with you. It is absolutely unbiblical to assert that God converted me, but he is no longer with me. I want us to acknowledge that thankfulness is not an optional part of the Christian life. We are not permitted to set aside thankfulness any more than we are permitted to set aside aspects of the gospel of grace. Maybe that just just seems impossible to believe but believe it, we must. It's here in Scripture. And so the first thing is this, is I want us to acknowledge that where Paul speaks most about thankfulness in this passage, he's actually thinking about Christ's work in the life of the church. But I also want us to acknowledge something else. I want us to acknowledge that thankfulness is sometimes exuberant and it's sometimes rather hidden. We know that by experience, but it's actually here in this passage. There's more than room for this distinction. I believe it's taught. Where do I see this in the passage? Well, in verse 16, there is a thankfulness in our hearts that gets sung about in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You see that right there in verse 16. It's it's actually a famous verse. Now, that kind of thankfulness is the kind of thankfulness that is present in our hearts, but it breaks out in song. It's the kind of thankfulness that is indeed exuberant. But there's another kind of thankfulness that is less noisy in this passage. In verse 15, the word that Paul uses for thankful, the very end of verse 15, the word that he uses for thankful, I hinted at this earlier, he uses multiple words. This word only occurs here in the Bible. And this word for thankful is actually a quieter kind of thankfulness than that which we find at the end of verse 16. 
It's almost as if the word that he uses in verse 15 is a rather introverted kind of thankfulness. A favorite short story author of mine from the early 20th century named H.H. Monroe introduces two characters in this short story. And he says this about them. He says, neither man was talkative and each was grateful to the other for not being talkative. And we know what that means. We know that uh, there are times in life when we are more introverted than we are uh, extroverted. Well, the, the word that Paul uses here in verse 15, it could be translated as a quiet disposition of thanks, a composed sense of gratefulness and calm. That actually is a preferred translation of John Calvin. It's a quiet kind of thankfulness. And so we need to acknowledge that our thankfulness is sometimes exuberant, but sometimes it isn't. Some of us uh, temperamentally offer a thankfulness that is uh, a rather quiet kind of thankfulness. But let me say this. Aren't there times in our lives in which even the extrovert is introverted in their thankfulness? Aren't there times in life where even the extrovertedly thankful person is actually introvertedly thankful, if thankful at all? As Christians, we understand that there are seasons in life in which we are uh, discombobulated, as it were, by financial hardship, by grief, by oppression, by doldrums. And in those times, we want to be able to hear from Scripture that it's okay if our thankfulness takes a slightly different shape. I believe the Bible allows that. And perhaps our thankfulness recedes very deep into our hearts. In these times, thankfulness seems not to be present at all. We don't feel it. We believe in the gospel. But the presence of Jesus isn't felt The rule of Jesus isn't felt. The dwelling of Jesus isn't felt. Well, this passage then becomes especially a passage for us. Because in the Bible, thankfulness exists because of union with Christ. Thankfulness is contingent not upon our feelings per se, but upon the work of Christ But here's where I want to uh, make sure that we understand that there is something wonderful about even while thankfulness may not be richly inside of my heart, that thankfulness can still be richly present in the life of the church. Because perhaps when our own personal thankfulness shrinks to just a tiny little glow on the backside of our heart, That in these times, thankfulness being vocalized for us by brothers and sisters in the life of the church is a very special gift from God. How beautiful it is that sometimes our expression of thanks are made not with our own lips, but with the lips of our brothers and sisters singing next to us, or the choir singing before us, or the minister praying our prayers. The church body can itself be in God's grace through the power of God's love and through the effective presence of Jesus Christ. The church body can be that megaphone of thanks that my heart needs needs to hear. 
It's so important that we understand the season that Thanksgiving is associated with personal behavior as we, as we wear Christ, that Thanksgiving is associated with uh, our present life of enjoying Christ, but also that Thanksgiving hinges upon the presence of Jesus Christ, not merely individually, but in the corporate body. But let's uh, continue on looking at the very last verse. And there we see that uh, thanksgiving figures large in our lives going forward as we live for Jesus Christ. And here in verse 17, uh, as, I, as I close, I just, I just want to draw our attention to this phrase, whatever you do. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul is saying to the Colossian Christians and saying to us that none of our endeavors by God's grace are so common, so simple, so seemingly invisible that they are off limits to serving the name of our good king. Some of our enterprises should not be done in the name of the Lord because they are unholy enterprises. That is true. We cannot pursue sinfulness in the name of the Lord. But those enterprises that are not sinful immediately become holy before God. And as such, we owe thanks to God that sinners like us can pursue mundane tasks as a vehicle for showing thanks to our worthy God. There is a a new energy and motivation behind our endeavors as Christians. Just as we're called to put on the Christian life before a God who has chosen us in Christ, made us holy in Christ, and loved us in Christ. And just as we enjoy the uninterrupted presence of God and the peace of Christ and the word of Christ, so too are we presented the honor of returning thanks to God in Christ, Paul says. Biblical thankfulness is deeply associated with Christ living in and among us. And as such, in Christ, our gratitude becomes a powerful motivator for living well before him. As I said earlier, a shallow view of the Christian life stems from a shallow understanding of the greatness and the goodness and the glory of the gospel of salvation. We need a regular reminder what it means to be a Christian so that we will live the life that God has in store for us as Christians. And here's where I have this illustration from the Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan shows us a conversation between faithful and Christian. Both faithful and Christian have just met a man called Talkative. And when they are with him, they noticed his great earnestness in the religious life. But both of them come away with this. This is how they summarize talkative. They say, his house is as empty of religion as the white of an egg is of savor. And there's something about the simplicity of that image that I so love. Each of us here should admit that there are seasons in our lives where we are uh, living lives that are uh, empty of an awareness of the gospel as an egg empty of the savor of its yolk. Over and over again, good theologians tell us that our lives ought to be filled with good works, not because we're motivated by, oh, I don't know, a a great work ethic, or we're motivated by keeping up appearances, or we're motivated by impressing the right people, or we're motivated by making money. Over and over and over again, good theologians tell us that our lives ought to be filled with good works because we know deeply the work of God and the gospel, and we are filled with gratitude. John Calvin says that the promises of God arouse us 
arouse us to take courage and to not grow weary in our well-doing. It's the work of the gospel that we grow in our knowledge of and understanding of and experience of and that arouses our good works because the gospel does that. In the 4th century, a pastor from Antioch named John Chrysostom says that having been saved by the gift of God, let us give thanks, not in words only, but in works and actions, for this is genuine thanksgiving. Genuine thanksgiving is an understanding of what we've received in the gospel, and that thanksgiving then serves as a motivation to live the kind of life that God has for us. And the examples in the history of good theologians are everywhere. The work of God in the gospel is our motivation for thanksgiving. So closely tied to thanksgiving is the gospel. And this is why thankfulness is deeply associated with Christ living in and among us. I want us as we go into a season in which we are using uh, the word uh, thank you often... I want us to consider this. Let us wear Christ in living holy lives before God. Let us enjoy Christ personally and in the life of his church. And let us live for Christ by doing all things in his name. What is our motivation to do these things? Nothing short of the power of God himself in the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved us. I want us to remember that. The closeness of of thanksgiving to the work of God and the gospel of Jesus. Can we remember that during this season? Can we remember that beyond this season? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, all of us, myself included, we ask that you would help us to take courage of your work in the gospel uh, in such a way that we live thankful lives, that we're grateful for what you've done for us, We pray, Father, that we would help to encourage one another in the greatness, the largeness of the gospel. How deep and great is your affection for us. That your only beloved son would hang on the cross and bleed for us. That the perfections of his life would become our own perfections as we are covered in the mantle of the righteousness of the only beloved one. How enormous And beautiful and glorious is the gospel of grace. And we thank you. We pray, Heavenly Father, that that thankfulness would color everything about us in this life. We ask that you would do this for your own namesake. Amen.